This morning we're turning back to Luke's account of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem at what would have been the final week of his life before the resurrection. Luke 19, verses 28 through 40. Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Uh, Father, I pray that your spirit would move now uh, through the preaching of your word. Uh, Father, that uh, the words I speak would be true and that which isn't would be forgotten. Father, I pray that uh, you would be seen as the glorious Messiah and Savior. God, I ask that you would do the work that only you can do now. In Christ's name, amen. Last week, we looked at this passage and it kind of surprised me when I think of the triumphal entry. I think of this is the good weekend and next weekend's gonna get difficult and yet it's during this time of praise of Christ that Christ is weeping and while the people are in a frenzy Christ knows better he actually sees what is going on and we see in uh, verse 42 would that even you had known on this day the things that make for peace. If only would they would have known that only a suffering Messiah who takes the place, who becomes the Lamb of God, that he's the one that can bring the peace that really matters. But the people of Israel didn't care about that peace. They assumed they had it. They assumed... They had peace with God. What they didn't have was political peace. And they were willing to praise Jesus because he was going to bring, in their day, political peace. But they didn't know the things that would make for peace, which would be repentance of their sins and turning to Christ as their Savior. And so Jesus speaks a word of judgment. He says, but now, this is the end of verse 42, they are hidden from your eyes for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another. Our They'll not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. They didn't know the things and they didn't know the time. This is the people 
that through generation after generation after generation was searching the Old Testament, was clinging to the promises of the Messiah. And they had the privilege to live in the day when the Messiah would show up. And yet they didn't know what time it was. They didn't know the work of the Messiah. They didn't understand him to be the suffering servant. And so uh, they either, what we see in this account, reject Jesus outright with hard-hearted unbelief represented in the Pharisees, or they were willing to receive Jesus as a political hero. Uh, In the same way they came and wanted breakfast again, after Jesus had fed the 5,000, Jesus could be useful to them. They could force him to be king. But in both sense, the true Christ was rejected. The crowds that are in a frenzy praising his name do not love him nor understand the work that he's going to do, at least the lion's share of the crowds. And this blindness... This judicial blindness that God had given them as they rejected miracle after miracle is an incredible blindness. They had in their Bibles Isaiah 53, verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray and turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And then verse 12, Therefore I'll divide with him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Because he poured out his soul to death, he was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessions for transgressions. That was written by Isaiah 750 years before Christ. And Christ fulfills, dies on the cross in the place of sinners, and yet, blind to it. Even though Jesus told them, I'm here to do this, they're blind to it. They look at the miracles and they're blind to it. Because of the hardness of their own heart, God gave them over to a sort of hardness and Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He weeps over the hardness of their heart. They didn't know the things and they didn't know the time. And it reminded me of the Alca Indians in Ecuador. They were a people, a violent people, a people that didn't know peace, a, tri- a tribe who knew nothing of peace, nor the things that would make for peace and they did not understand the time of their visitation and many of you maybe know what I'm talking about these are the five missionaries that were famously slain Nate Saint, Peter Fleming Roger Udarian Jim Elliott and Ed McCauley all gave their lives to reach one of the most violent tribes on the face of the earth even though they would fly over the tribes and drop gifts to them over and over, trying to show that this is peace. We we come to bring peace. We don't come to harm you. These five men ended up speared to death, even though they had guns and were able to defend themselves, willingly died in order to bring the gospel message to them. And while Nate Saint was dying, and if you've ever seen the movie, The End of the Spear, Nate Saint knew how to say, I am your friend. You're my friend. And so while he's bleeding to death with a spear inside him, the man standing over him, Minkai, 
saw and heard, I am your friend coming out of his mouth. And I often thought after Minkai, by the grace of God, came to trust Christ through the wives of these men. The heartache as he grew up then, knowing Steve said, Nate's son. And I, went, and I was just going to tell you this story and say, here's a people that didn't understand the time of their visitation. They needed to know what would bring peace. And as I was doing some research, I came across this video. I just wanted to show it. It's five minutes long. Let a murderer from a tribe in Ecuador share the gospel with you this morning. This is Steve Saint. It would be Nate's little boy at the time when now grown up, now friends with Minkaye, sharing the gospel uh, in joy. Amen. He's saying, people, do you know how to walk God's trail? He gave us his markings so that we can see the trail. When the Waurani used to kill each other, they would be separated, but the children would follow their father's markings so that they could find him again. And these are God's markings. He sent his son down here, dripping his blood. He marked the trail. And with that same blood, grandfather says, Father Creator can wash our hearts clean like the sky when it has no clouds in it so we can see this trail. You just have to follow the markings. In, in my I teach the people, if you walk your trail, where are you going to end up? Your name is not written there. But he said, but if you walk God's trail, your name is all, your name is already marked there. And coming there, God has made a place for us to live. It's like he knows when we go into the motel, we have to write our name there to sleep. And he says, your name is already written there at the place that God has made. You don't even have to play, pay a room rate. No tax. He didn't say that, obviously. Me, I didn't. He said, if you're, if you're not a coming after one, then maybe you won't understand this. Ask God to clean your heart so that you too can see it. If you don't walk God's trail, he doesn't know your name. You're going on your own trail. That's bad, bad. That makes me cry, he said. My heart was dark like my shirt. But the, but the king calls to us. The, they don't have any leadership, but he knows that the king is the strong one who can tell us what to do. He said, the king is calling to us and calling to us. Come walk my trail. I want to be reunited with you. God calling to me said, which trail do you want to walk? And I finally answered, I want to walk your trail. Why would I walk my own trail with no place waiting for me there? He says, in God's place, it's like Odo, it's like gold. It's a very good place. He knows we all wear gold to signify precious. And so he's saying, you folks like gold, wait till you get to God's place. He's inspired. He said, I think you were like me before. You didn't see this trail either, did you? Somebody has to teach us to walk the trail. Somebody has to teach us the markings, and then we need to teach others.
Later, he says, when I was living badly, badly, then what happened? Then Star, uh, Aunt Rachel, and Woodpecker, Aunt Betty, she's very tall, long neck. He said, they came, and they are the ones that taught me God's markings. My heart was dark. My heart was dark like this. How could I see? How could I see? I, nobody had ever showed me this trail. I didn't know how to walk it. I said no to the king. What the king said, I said no at first. But God called my own name to him. Now my heart is not dark anymore. God sent his own son down here to the dirt so that he could show us how. Why would any of you not want to be coming after ones? Why would you not want to walk the same trail that God's own son, his only son, marked for us with his blood? You need help. <clears throat> and we see the miracle of God's grace as he opened the eyes of the Wadani or the Auka Indians that now they're a peaceful tribe trusting Christ. And I wondered though, I thought, how hard would it be? I think of this with the Apostle Paul too, being there at the stoning of Stephen. How, how hard would it be not knowing the time of your visitation, violently attacking the ones bringing peace. You'd have to live your whole life looking at that Steve Saint or his family having to trust in the grace of God in your own life. Would you not? Would the devil not come and always bring that upon you? And one of the questions that we're going to look at today is, Jesus pronounced destruction on Israel in our text. In fact, he described exactly what happened in 70 uh, AD in the destruction of uh, Jerusalem. It's interesting, Jerusalem literally uh, means city of peace. The city that has never known peace, hardly ever, is named the city of peace. And yet, uh, Jesus describes the type of destruction where not one stone will be left in, in the temple. He says, they'll barricade you in from all sides. I did a little research on the siege of Jerusalem in 70 AD and what a battle it was. Five months of war, Titus leading the Roman army uh, against Jerusalem, finding a much greater battle than he expected. There was a lot of mini battles that Israel actually won during that five months. And, and we don't really have time to go get into it. I'll tell you one part. The Romans started building these ramps to get over the wall. And and while they're building the ramps, there's constant barrage of arrows coming from Israel on, on the Romans. And they have their big shields that are almost the size of their bodies building these ramps uh, so that they could come and get over the wall. While that was happening, the Jews dug underground underneath where they were building these and started uh, uh, these pitmen uh, fires or bitmen fires underneath the ground where they were. And those fires actually caused their ramps to uh, crumble in on themselves. Uh, a lot of Roman soldiers died. Huge victory for Israel. But as the battering rams kept coming and coming, and uh, Israel slowly began to be worn down. They 
Titus started this battle three days before the Passover. So Jerusalem was swelling with people, with Jews that had lived in all sorts of different places coming for the Passover. It it was a time where it was terrible destruction uh, for Israel. And even the way the battle ended up being won, uh, a flaming uh, stick essentially thrown over an inner wall into where that temple was, went into an opening in the temple and started the temple on fire. Uh, Josephus said they actually didn't want to burn the temple down. They wanted to make it a monument uh, to Caesar. But in God's providence, in, in Jesus' words being fulfilled, the temple burned. And, and by the time they got done ransacking uh, Jerusalem, they basically starved them out. Uh, the Romans, Jesus says this in our text, they'll hem you in on every side. After a couple months of battle, what they realized is that night the Jews would sneak out and bring food in to feed the masses. They knew the terrain. They knew the ravines. And so what the Romans did is they went and demolished every tree and every shrub, and they built a wall around Jerusalem, a barricade, where they couldn't get out to get resources for the people hemmed in, uh, uh, in the city. Terrible terrible judgment of God. And the, and the reason for the judgment is because of their rejection of their Messiah. And Jesus wept. He loved them. He knew generation after generation. I mean, just, just think of the Alki Indians. Did they have the Old Testament? Should have they been expecting the Messiah? So they rejected the time of visitation, but they, they would have had no idea the hardness of heart of Israel when Christ showed up. The wickedness of the shepherds of the time was so great. And so the question to ask is this, is God done with Israel as a nation for good? Is that where God washed his hands of Israel. Final judgment. And he's on to the Gentiles and the church age, or at least the elect Israel. And at some point in time in Luke, we were going to have to start tackling end times theology. And whenever we do this, whenever we come to do this, we need to do it with humility and with grace. Within this body of believers here, there's different views on how the prophecies of the end times uh, will play out. And it's not that we shouldn't talk about it. It's not that we shouldn't dive into it. It's that when we do, all of us should have the same goal. What does the text say? What, how does it point us forward? And so I'm going to ask you uh, this morning to lean in. This might be the point you drift off. Put on your thinking caps. And we're going to start to define some terms because as we get into Luke chapter 21, uh, I'm going to preach the text from a certain perspective. And at least, even if you disagree with it, you can understand uh, the perspective uh, that I'm coming from. And so if we were going to start wide, I mean, you can, you, you've heard these terms before, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib. Well, those are three views within another view called premillennialism. And then there's all millennialism. And then there's post-millennialism. Well, we're not even going to cover those this morning. Uh, we'll talk more about those later. But what we are going to look at is is the book of Revelation, are the uh, prophecy texts we see in the scripture past tense, already accomplished in the, in the past, or are they still laying uh, in front of us in the future? Uh, 
So one view called preterism, uh, and, and here I'm quoting Michael Howman on what preterism is, and, and with any view, there's, uh, there's views within views. So we're just giving the general view. According to preterism, all prophecy in the Bible is really history. The preterist interpretation of Scripture regards the book of Revelation as a symbolic picture of first century conflicts, like the 70 AD conflict. Not a description of what will occur in the end times. The term preterism comes from the Latin word praetor, which means past. Thus, preterism is the view that the biblical prophecies concerning the end times have already been fulfilled in the past. Preterism is directly opposed to futurism. So those are the only two uh, categories we're going to look at this morning. Um, Preterism versus futurism, uh, which sees the end times prophecy as having still future fulfillment. Preterism is divided into two types. There's full or sometimes called consistent preterism, and there's partial preterism. Preterism, uh, full preterism, denies the future prophetic quality of the book of Revelation. The preterist movement essentially teaches that all the end times prophecies of the New Testament were fulfilled in 70 AD when the Romans attacked and destroyed Jerusalem. Preterism teaches that every event normally associated with the end times, Christ's second coming, the tribulation, the resurrection of the dead, the final judgment, has already happened. In the case of the final judgment, it's still in the process of being fulfilled. Jesus' return to earth was a spiritual return, not a physical one, according to the preterist. So Jesus showed up in 70 A.D., they would say, at the destruction of Jerusalem, that we're not to to expect a physical return of Christ. Preterists usually, our preterism teaches that the law was fulfilled in 70 AD and God's covenant with Israel was ended. The new heavens and new earth spoken of in Revelation 21 is is to the preterists a description of the world under the new covenant. Just as Christians are made a new creation in 2 Corinthians 5.17, so the world under the new covenant is a new earth. This aspect of preterism can easily lead to the belief uh, of replacement theology, which is God is done with Israel in 70 AD as a nation, and and he's judged them finally. Preterists usually point to the to a passage in the Jesus's Olivet discourse to bolster their argument. After Jesus describes some of the end times happening happenings, he said, "Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened." Matthew twenty four thirty four. The preterist takes this to mean that everything Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24 had to have occurred within one generation of his speaking. The destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was therefore judgment day. Uh, And and I'm still quoting Michael Howman. The problems with preterism, in his opinion, are many. For one, God's covenant with Israel is an everlasting covenant, Jeremiah 31, 33, and there will be a future restoration of Israel, Isaiah eleven twelve. The Apostle Paul warned against those who, like Hymenaeus and Philetius, teach falsely that the resurrection had already taken place and destroyed the faith of some, 2 Timothy 2, 17. And, and he says, and Jesus' mention of this generation should be taken to mean the generation that is alive uh, to see the beginning events described in, in Matthew 24. So in Matthew 24, these events, cataclysmic events that are taking place, when that generation sees it, they will not surely pass away, meaning the birth pains are there, the birth is coming quickly. 
So we're going to ask the question this morning, and, and I, I am more convinced of the futurist view. And, and so this morning, I, in a sense, I want to point to some texts that have led me to that direction. I, I'm by no means pretending like uh, this is all conclusive and that we can't have discussions with, with those who disagree because uh, I need to be willing and you need to be willing to submit to whatever God's word says. And once again, you might be sitting there saying, why are we doing this? What's the point? Well, if you want to lean into the next chapters coming, you got to have a framework uh, and you want to know the framework of the preacher if you're going to try to understand, even if you take a different view, where the view he is proposing. Uh, so, uh, to begin with, I just want to ask the question, is God done with Israel as a nation for good? And has God's enemies already been judged by Christ in 70 A.D. at the cross? So, in Luke chapter 13, verse 34, already in Luke, you know, when Jesus is weeping over Jerusalem and he's saying, if, if you had known the things and you had known the time, the text that came to my mind was this text. Because I knew Jesus had looked over Jerusalem before with this same heart. And so what he says is, in Luke 13, he says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those that are sent to it, how often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. Here's the tenderness of Christ. Here's his heart towards them. I sometimes hear uh, those who believe in the sovereignty of God treat, in a sense, the unelect is like, God doesn't care. God doesn't care about them. Who, why should I care? God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. And Jesus' heart aches as he looks at the hardness of heart of Israel. And here's what he says. Behold, your house is forsaken. If he had ended it right there, I might think he's done with Israel. But he says this, and I tell you, you will not see me until. So he's, he's talking to Israel, who's rejected all the prophets, and he's saying, right now, your house is forsaken. Your leaders are terrible shepherds. Until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And in verse 38 of our text, as they're waving palm branches, what are they saying? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. So they say it, but they're not saying it right. They have their, it's not that Christ isn't a king, it's that they're not confessing him as the Messiah. Jesus is useful to them. We know that because in the very text, when Jesus is pronouncing judgment on Israel, they're saying the thing they would expect us to say, the house won't be forsaken anymore when they say that phrase. And then in Luke chapter 21, which we'll get to in a couple months probably, uh, in verse 20, Jesus says, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know its desolation has come near. Now the question is, is there one time Jerusalem's going to be surrounded by armies, or is there two? Will Israel become a nation again? They did in 1948. Uh, and will Jerusalem be surrounded again? The preterists would say no. Uh, but he says here, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you'll know that desolation has come near. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains and let those who are inside the city depart and let those who are out of the country 
who, who are out in the country enter it, for these are the days of vengeance to fulfill all that is written. So this is the day of the Lord being described, which is always talks of judgment. Alas, for, wi- for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against his people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be held captive among the nations. Well, that sounds like 70 AD. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. So that seems to describe both 70 AD, but not as a final sense, but there will be a greater sense. What what does he mean until? Twice we've seen this in Luke. Until they say, blessed is the name of the Lord, and until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Turn to Romans 9. I'm quickly seeing this is going to be a three-part sermon, which you guys are used to, I guess. So Romans 11, just just to give you a little uh, quick background. In Romans 9, Paul said, not all is Israel is Israel. But those who have the faith of Abraham are the true Israel. So if Romans 9 ended there, I think I would believe, maybe, or be tempted to believe in replacement theology, where the church takes the place of the nation of Israel. But the question is, is does Paul still have a category for Israel as an ethnic nation or or as a political nation. So in Romans 11, here's what he says. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? So what's just been said before this is the hardening of heart and the judgment on Israel for rejecting the Messiah. And so did Israel stumble so that it might be a final fall? By no means. Rather, their trespass, or through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. So now the phrase, until the time of the Gentiles, comes to mind, as, as, I, as we read in Luke. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? So, well, let's just keep reading. Now I am speaking to you Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and save some of them. So he's still thinking about them. He's not thinking in his mind like, be done with them. For if their rejection means reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, Gentiles, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant towards the branches. He's concerned about Gentile Christians saying, God's done with Israel, I think. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Then you'll say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen, but kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, 
For God has power to graft them in again. So it's not too hard for him to do it. And if you were cut off from that which is by nature an olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery. Okay, what's the mystery? What is Paul saying? I'm going to reveal to you now. Brothers, a partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. So Jesus Jesus says, you didn't know the day of your visitation. So these things are going to be hidden from your eyes until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards to the gospel, he's speaking like right now in the present when the hardening's on them. They are enemies for your sake. That is true. You're not going to have a lot of friends in Israel when you bring the gospel of Jesus Christ there. They are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and callings of God are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too, having now been disobedient, in order that by the mercy shown to you, they may now also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God and how unsearchable are his judgments and inscrutable his ways. What a fitting end to... (laughs) such rich theology. Now you might say, well, how in the world does anyone ever, doesn't that clear all things up? Uh, Those who see all Israel being saved and grafted back in in a partial hardening, what they see is that there's a certain amount of Israel that's elect and it's a partial group. And And so all Israel will be saved and that that partial group will be saved. That's who God picked. And and what I'm giving to you is texts that are in my mind that we got to wrestle with, we got to deal with. I'm going to give you a few more and then we're going to have to finish next week with a lot of these. Acts 3.18 But what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets, that is, Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. This is Peter's preaching to Jews. Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Those are the things that would bring peace to Israel. Why? That times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that they may send the Christ appointed for you. Wait a minute. He's already been sent. And so he wants them to pray for times of refreshing so that Christ will come appointed for you. Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets long ago. So Jesus is to ascend into heaven for an allotted time until the time of refreshing and restoring will come, I think, to Israel. When, when he says by the mouth of the holy prophets, uh, what, what we have left in this sermon is Jeremiah and Isaiah and Zechariah and Joel. 
What did the prophets say to Israel? What were the promises to Israel? And did Christ fulfill all those uh, spiritually so that they won't be seen physically? That's the question uh, that we have before us. So let's, ah, let's take one Old Testament prophet here, Zechariah. And then we'll continue next week. In these first couple, I'm just going to give you a little overview of the end of the book of Zechariah. You can go look at these. I don't, yeah, this starts at 12. So before we get to 12, Zechariah 9, 9, we looked at that last week. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. We looked at this last week. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem. There's going to be peace in Jerusalem. And the battle bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. Which is really what happens, right? Israel gets hardened at that time. But the nations, the Gentiles come flooding in. His rule shall be from sea to sea and his rivers to the end of the earth. And then if we were to look at Zechariah 10, he, he talks about, but I'm going to gather Israel back. He, he's still talking about judgment on these wicked leaders, Zechariah 10.6. And let's just be amazed. This is written hundreds of years before any of this happened. Jesus is going to come riding on a donkey. And he did. And then in chapter 10, it says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, verse 6. I will save the house of Joseph. I'll bring them back because I have compassion on them and they shall be as though I had not rejected them. Which means he will reject them. For I am the Lord their God and will answer them. In Zechariah 10.8, a few verses later says, I'll whistle for them and gather them in for I, I have redeemed them, and they shall be as many as there were before. Though I scattered them among the nations, yet in far countries they shall remember me, and with their children they shall live in return. So, so as Israel gets spread to the nations, God says he'll gather them back. Then in chapter 11, you have horrible judgment spoken against these wicked shepherds over Israel. Zechariah 11.4 Thus said the Lord my God, become a shepherd of the flock doomed to slaughter. Those who buy them slaughter them and go unpunished. And those who sell them say, blessed be the Lord. I've become rich and their own shepherds have no pity on them. For I will no longer have pity on the inhabitants of this land, declares the Lord. This sounds like 70 AD to me. I will cause each of them to fall into the hand of his neighbor and into the hand of his king, and they shall crush the land, and I will deliver none of them from their hands for the sake of time. Look at verse 12 then. Then I said to them, if it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Come on. What did they, what did Judas sell Jesus for? 30 pieces of silver. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which, uh, at which I was priced by them. And, and you know that he was spilled in the potter's field, uh, Judas. So I took 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. That's, let's just admit, if you don't believe the Bible, it's because you're hard-hearted and you don't want to believe. Don't be. Okay, I'm going to show self-control. We're going to stop here. The good stuff is coming still, in my opinion. Either way you look at it, our God is an amazing Savior. And you say, well, what good will this do for me this week? Three things. Look at your notes. Consider God's fierce judgment towards hard-hearted unbelief. There may be a day if you're in rebellion, 
against God. If you're saying, I don't like the things, I don't like repentance, and I don't like faith, there may be a day where God gives you over to the hardness of your heart. Is your heart soft? Do you tremble before God? Do you know you're a sinner? Do you know you need the promised Christ? Do you know that it's by faith, repentance and clinging to Christ, that there can be peace in your heart with God? Your biggest problem is God if you're outside of Christ because sin has separated you from Him. But Jesus is the mediator, the God-man who stands between you and Him. Consider God's amazing grace. You're a Gentile and I'm a Gentile and many of you are believing and I'm believing and we shouldn't be believing. That's by the mercy and grace of God that we be grafted in to this root. We're in wild olive tree and yet God in His mercy has given a time for the Gentiles. And that's the third thing. Do you know the time? Do you know what time it is? Do you know that you could pass away the moment you walk out of here? A truck could hit you. You could pass away in your sleep tonight and your time allotted to be made right with God and have peace with God will be gone. But today you're here, which means all the promises of the new covenant are at the brink right before you if you'll turn to Christ and if you will have Christ. And so that's my prayer. Let's learn from God dealing with his people through history. Father, thank you for Christ. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Old Testament prophets that get their prophecies right, right down to the literal detail of what they prophesied, that Christ would come on a donkey, that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver. And as we look further into Zechariah, we're going to see that Jesus' actual feet will hit the Mount of Olives, the place Jesus ascended from before he even died, that was predicted. And so we give you praise for your word. It's obviously supernatural. Lord, let us not be hard-hearted. Let us lean into it and be saved. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.